or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ, and I love this expression, Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Father, tonight, once again, as we come together to, uh, to honor you and to worship you and to study your word, I pray that we would uh, listen to what it is that we need to hear, that we would do more than just listen with our ears, we would listen with our hearts. We would understand that as your children, we're called to walk a different way, to live a different life than that that the world offers. We're called to be different than what we was before we met Christ. I pray for those here tonight who maybe don't have that relationship with you, that, that they would understand the necessity of it. They would understand that... Uh, there's no way to renew yourself. There's no way to remake yourself. The only thing we can do is be uh, made a new creation through Jesus Christ. I pray the words that you give the Apostle Paul <coughs> would speak to our heart and mind this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Now about 35 years ago, there was a very popular book that hit the market. It was called Dress for Success. Anybody ever read that? It was in the business world who it was written to. And the premise of that book was that how you dress or what you wear has an impact whether or not you succeed in the business world. And that is, I'm sure, certainly true. Because I believe, folks, it's a proven fact that clothes do make a difference. They make a difference in how other people perceive us. They make a difference in how we feel about ourselves. I mean, think about this. People, when they're depressed, they often let their appearance go. But people who feel good about themselves, they want to look as good as they feel. Well, Paul, in our text this evening, uses the idea of clothing or dress to emphasize how we're to live as Christians and why we're to live this way in light of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Now what Paul does, he links the idea of clothing to certain attitudes and behaviors, and he reminds us that certain things just don't go together. I mean, uh, I was reminded of this, I was watching a, a show with Mary Beth this afternoon, we was watching a, uh, I don't know, documentary or whatever it is, but it's about ancient empires, and it was around the, the, uh, around the first century A.D., and they were talking about the Celtics, uh, how they were battling the Roman Empire. And there was a professor on there, and he had on a blue checkered jacket. He must have been very intelligent, because he had on a blue checkered jacket, he had on a blue and pink checkered tie, and he had on a striped shirt. There are certain things that just don't go together. Those did not go together. Now I say he must have been very intelligent and he appeared to be. Because most people who are very intelligent like that, they don't give a rip about what they wear. Well, folks, Paul is letting us know tonight, and again, he's using the illustration of clothing to explain to us that if we're going to be successful in the Christian life, then we need to know what to wear. We need to know what to take off and what to put on. We need to learn how to clothe ourselves in those attitudes and those behaviors that make us successful in the Christian life. 
Because, uh, and I know you'll agree with me on this, the old behaviors, the old habits and attitudes of our past before we met Christ, they're no longer in style now that we're Christian. Now that we have been raised to new life in Christ because we've been saved. Those old habits and uh, uh, lifestyles and those old attitudes, they're no longer in style. But no, not only are they no longer in style, but they're also dangerous and they're deadly to us. So what Paul does, he defines what we need as essential and appropriate Christian attire. And we see, first of all, we're going to be dressed for success in the Christian life. Paul tells us we must put off the corruption of the sinful man. Now to begin this section of discussion, the Apostle Paul, he uses some, some pretty strong language in encouraging us, in uh, exhorting us to put off the, that corruption of the sinful man. Notice verse 5. Now this is how the King James, he said, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now notice that word mortify. You know what that word really means? It means put to death. It means to kill. In other words, Paul's saying, kill it. Kill that old lifestyle. Kill that old man. We're to put to death that sinful nature. And not only are we put that sinful nature to death, but Paul later on talks, or before this, actually in the book of Romans, he talks about how we're to have a funeral for that old man. We're to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin. And that is the same thing Paul is saying here. He's saying we're to put that old man, that old sinful nature, to death. And notice, the way this is written, it's not an option, folks. It's a command that Paul's getting. Now, the great uh, Puritan preacher, theologian Richard Baxter, many, many years ago, he wrote this. He said, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer, and the murderer of your world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. And though it bring you to the grave... No, it will not be able to keep you there because of Christ. Now folks, in putting off this corruption of our old sinful nature, there are two steps that have to be taken. And Paul reminds us of this. First of all, he gives a reminder of sinful behavior. That behavior we had in past life. Now, once we're exhorted and encouraged to put to death or to kill the sinful man, we're reminded of the behavior. Why we're to put to death that old sinful nature, that old sinful, corrupted nature in man. Paul details a graphic list. Look at verse 5. He gives the sins. He said, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now folks, these types of sin, they characterize man in his sinful, depraved, natural state. Now remember something, you've heard this, you know this is true. A man is not a sinner because he sins, he sins why? Because he's a sinner by nature. We're born that way, we're born with that sin nature. So such behavior that Paul is listing here, it can only be expected from one who is a sinner. One who has never met Christ, never, never received that saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this type of sinful behavior includes sins of immorality. That's what Paul lists first. He says, fornication, uncleanness. Now, the word fornication, and I preached over this before. It comes for, actually from a Latin word, which we uh, derive our English word pornography from. And it speaks of the whole spectrum of immoral sexual relationships from <clears throat> fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and, and everything and, and anything in between that. Next, Paul lists the sins of impurity. 
He says, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. Now those words are better translated unnatural affection and evil desire. That speaks of moral indecency or filth and lust. Finally, Paul, he lists sins of idolatry. Notice he says covetousness. In fact, Paul takes time to list this sin as a sin of idolatry, the sin of covetousness. Now let me explain this to you, why Paul does this. The word covetousness, folks, in the Greek language comes from two words, and it's the first word is the word desire. The second word is the word that means to have more. So when you put those two words together, the word covetousness really means the desire to have more. You see, idolatry, folks, it's not restricted uh, to bowing down before an idol made of wood, stone, gold, silver, brass, whatever it is. Idolatry at a basic level, idolatry occurs when a person gives their deepest loyalty to some power or some force other than God. That's idolatry. So covetousness is idolatry because it gives man supreme allegiance to the things that he possesses in his life rather than the person who gives life and is life. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 15? Take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now, when a man desires or a woman desires more of material things, more of worldly goods, then it's very unlikely that they're going to desire more of God. Let me put it this way. And Jesus said this first in the Sermon on the Mount, made it very clear. No man can, no man will, no man is able to serve two masters. Now, our ultimate allegiance will only be devoted to that which is nearest and dearest to our heart and our soul. So whenever something or uh, someone consumes a person's passion to the point that it becomes the driving force in their life, then it's something which has taken the rightful place that belongs only to God. And therefore, the sin of adultery has been committed. Does that make sense to everybody? Y'all look at me like a calf at a new gate. Are you hearing me tonight? Y'all awake? Folks, anytime I read this passage, and I... I read that list of sins that Paul describes and that Paul gives. It reminds me of a guy I heard about who was looking at a piece of modern art, a painting. And he was an appraiser and a collector. And he was trying to appraise this picture, this painting. Well, he had a friend with him who was also a collector and an appraiser. And his friend began to explain to him what the, the picture, what it depicted. That it depicted not only what the artist saw, but it depicted the artist's mind. The first guy kind of cocked his eyebrow and looked at him. He said, well, i got to be honest with you. If I had a mind that looked like that, I do not believe I would expose it for all the world to see. Well, Paul, what he does right here, he not only exposes the mind, but he exposes the heart and the soul of a sinful man. And once this graphic list that he gives us is given, he reminds us, look at verse 6 and 7. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them. Now these are matters, folks, which dominate the sinful nature of man. And I want to say it again, these matters, these sins that Paul mentioned, they are things that once controlled, consumed, and characterized our lives before we met Jesus Christ. Now secondly, there's not only a reminder of sinful behavior or why, we're to put off that old sinful nature, put to death that nature of corruption. <clears throat> but also, secondly, folks, 
Paul gives us a reason of, of why a removal of shameful behavior. Because look at verse 8 and 9. Twice we're instructed to put off. Uh, verse 8 says, But now ye also put off all these. Verse 9, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So, listen to me. These sinful matters, they have no place in the life of a Christian. Paul says, In the life of somebody who has been resurrected with Christ, they're a new creation. They're a new man. They're a new woman. Paul says these things have no place in their life and they're to be removed. Now the type of shameful behavior that's to be removed from our lives, notice what he says. First of all, he refers to inward hostilities. It's characterized, look at verse 8. He says, anger, wrath, and malice. Now the word anger, that describes deep internal feelings. It reflects, uh, reflects a, uh, a smoldering Attitude that harbors ill will toward another person. Remember Jesus said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 22, uh, He said that anger is like murder. Now, I will be quick to say this. The Bible does not condemn all types of anger, and we know this. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 26, said, Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. The implication is that it's not always wrong to be angry, but it is always wrong to be angry when we're angry in the wrong way. Now folks, I'm going to be honest with you. There are things, and you know, I've said it before, there are things that make me angry, that I get angry about. You know, uh, I get angry when I hear a preacher say that God's primary concern with you is your happiness, not your obedience to His Word. <coughs> I get angry. I get angry when I hear some knucklehead joker like Louis Farrakhan, the Muslim religious leader, say that, well, you know, if you'll read the Bible, Jesus never said, follow me. Jesus never said that He desired uh, people to follow Him and, and be His disciples. I also get angry when He calls the Jewish people termites. Now there are certain things that we're to get angry about, folks. Remember, the Lord Jesus, He got angry on several occasions. He became angry. However, it was righteous anger. Okay, He was angry at the right thing, at the right way. As believers, folks, we're to be angry at sin. We're to hate what sin can do. And let me say this. We're to be angry about sin and what sin can do. We should never apologize for being angry about what sin can do and how it destroys people's lives. You know, the Greek, ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle said this once. Anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way is not easy. Now notice the next word he used, the word wrath. That's anger taken to the next level. Matter of fact, it describes a sudden outburst, like a, a fire, an explosion. In modern terminology, we would say uh, losing our temper is what Paul's talking about. Now look at the word malice. In the Greek terminology, it was a broad word. Uh, it, it meant all sorts of depravity and evil. The word's used here because it speaks of an eagerness to harm another person. So what Paul is talking about, it describes an intent to injure someone's person or character. Now all these things that Paul mentioned here in verse 8, these are matters of inward hostility. But now in verse 8, he moves to uh, outward hypocrisy. Notice the next word. He says blasphemy. Now we all think, well we know what blasphemy is. Well actually the word that's used here for blasphemy, it has a twofold meaning. It was often associated with the word slander. So whenever speech was directed at a person, it was considered slander. Whenever the speech was directed at God, it was considered blasphemy. Now look at the word. next word. He uses filthy communication. 
Now, I think we probably all know what that is. It's better rendered foul-mouthed. And what it does, it speaks and describes off-color or objectional obscene speech. It carries the idea of a type of speech which embarrasses others, makes them ashamed, like profanity or, or slang terminology. Now, I want you to notice verse 9. We're exhorted to lie not one to another. That word lie, that comes from the Greek word pseudo. And it's a word that was used to describe an actor who wore a mask or played a part of someone else. It speaks of a pretense or, or someone putting on a facade is what it's talking about. So then it actually speaks of hypocrisy is what it speaks of. Now what Paul's done, he has dealt with what we say, but now he deals with how we live. Alright, this is not a matter. What Paul's talking about now is not a matter of what we say with our lips, but what we say with our life. And simply put, in verse 9, what Paul is saying is, we're not to play the part of a hypocrite. We're not to pretend to be something we're not. We're to take off the mask. We're to be real with one another. Professor Lehman Strauss puts it this way, speaking of this. He said, nothing so divides and separates Christians as falsehood. Misrepresentation, suspicion, unscrupulous partisanship, mutual confidence is a bond of Christian fellowship. And I agree with him. Folks, all these matters uh, that Paul has been discussing, they're matters that have no part in the life of a born-again believer. They should not be there. The new man is to reign supreme. The old man is to be put to death. Now look what Paul states in verse 9 again. We see that we're to put off the old man with his deeds. Put him off. Now notice secondly, if you're going to be dressed for success in the Christian life, and I only got two points tonight, Say it's going to be a short sermon. No, it's not. This last point's going to be a little long. Uh, folks, we're not only to put off the corruption of a sinful man, but secondly, we're to put on the character of a born-again man, of, of a saintly man. There's a negative put off, and there's a positive put on. Now, I want to reiterate something that I, I said this morning, folks. Every born-again believer, every Christian is a child of the King. Every Christian is a prince or a princess of heaven. And Paul makes the point here in what he's saying, and you've heard me say this before. Paul is reminding us that since we're children of the King, we ought to talk like it, act like it, think like it, walk like it, be a child of the King. He says, put off the old man, that old sinful nature, and put on the new man who is raised in the image and the likeness of Christ. So we've been exhorted. Again, removed, put off. Sinful man put on the character of a born-again child of God. Now, here's something interesting you may not know. The phrase put off and put on, they were used in Paul's day to describe the initiation ceremonies into pagan religions. And I found that interesting. What, what it talks of, it speaks of taking off one garment, putting on another garment. In pagan rituals and pagan ceremonies, it was symbolic of having laid aside one's position with the gods and assumed another status or a new position with the gods. So new clothing was a symbol of a new status. So Paul, being the master teacher that he is, he takes the language and the culture of the day and he uses it to drive home this point. That as Christians, as believers in Christ, as those who have a new life, resurrected life, in Jesus Christ, we're not to live the way we lived before we met Christ. And that's the point that he's making. I love the way the old Baptist preacher from the 20's, Dr. Norman Harrison, speaks of this. He wrote and said, When God creates a new man 
Instead of taking him to his glory home, he's careful to play the part of a tailor in providing suitable clothing for his son to wear. His dress must conform to his nature, position, and his new purpose in life. So the father invites him into his robing room, not to make, but to take the articles of apparel most suited to his new person and to his new station in life. So folks, our new wardrobe is given to us at the moment we're saved. It's given to us at the moment that we are raised with Christ to a new life. And we're clothed in a brand new garment and new character. And Paul describes this as putting on the, uh, putting on the, the new man, the, new, uh, the character of a, of a saintly man and a born-again believer. Paul describes it, he says, the source of godly character. Now, look at verse 10 and 11. Paul reminds us where godly character originates, where it comes from. After we change your spiritual clothes, put off the old man, look at verse 10. Put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, verse 11. Where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. I want to reiterate something else I said this morning. If a person is a born again child of God, it doesn't matter their background, where they're from, where they live, they're part of my family. You see, notice that phrase, but Christ is all and in all. Here's where a lot of people make a mistake in the Christian life. The Christian life, folks, is not based on you or me. It's based on Jesus Christ. He is in all and is all. Now, the old man, that old nature of sin, that, that, that's to be done away with. The new man, that new nature of Christ, is to reign. The new nature, now think about this, it's God's gift of spiritual power through Jesus Christ. Now, what I mean by that is, stay with me on this, <coughs> as a believer, as a Christian, that new nature that God gives us, the nature of Christ, it opens the way for the Christian to overcome and defeat sin. The idea is that once we put off the old nature, we put on the new nature, the new nature of the life of Christ begins to take on more and more of His divine image. And so, now, follow me on this. We, through the new nature, become more like Jesus. That's the simple doctrine of sanctification. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. And when we do that, we become more like Jesus. And each day that passes... The image of Christ is seen more and more clearly in our lives. One preacher said it like this, The old man, he's not converted, he can't be. He's not renewed, he won't be. He can only be replaced by the new man. Now that old nature is the unregenerate man. It's the nature of existence in Adam. Okay, It's depraved, defiled, it is destitute, and it's a deadly nature. Now the new nature, in contrast to the old nature, what Paul's telling us, the new nature is the regenerate man. It, it's what we as believers are in Christ. It's a new creation created in Christ at the moment of salvation where all things become new. And the new nature walks differently from the world. It loves God. It hates sin. It pursues righteousness. The source, folks, of the new nature of godly character is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It's not us, but it's Jesus. Are you catching what I'm throwing here? You hear what I'm telling you? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Not only do we see the source of godly character, but, but also there's the course of godly character. 
So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, listen to me. Those who have been saved by the grace of God are those whose old life has been put to death, whose new life has been brought to life and raised with Christ. It's more than a change of spiritual apparel. That's why Paul says again in Romans 6, 11, Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. It's more than just changing spiritual apparel. It's a changing of spiritual attitudes, actions, and desires. The new life of the believer takes on a new course of conduct. What I mean by that is, we were going this way, then we met Jesus Christ. We were saved. The old man needs to be put to death. The new man was raised with Christ. So instead of going this way, now there's an about face and we're going this way. Now I want to make this real clear. You've heard me say it many times. If somebody professes to be a born again believer, that they've given their life to Christ, but there is no change in them from the direction they were going before they met Christ, then I'm going to tell you, with all honesty and all love, they've not met Jesus Christ there will be a change that takes place. Their course will be different. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. All this that Paul mentioned, they're virtues to be experienced in the life of the child of God. The old nature moves out, the new nature moves in, takes over, and we're to experience the virtue. The first one, he says, bowels of mercy. That's an old, uh, uh, of course, King James translation. A better translation of that would be deep tenderheartedness. The expression of that word means to feel so deeply for another person that you experience the pain of another person's sorrow right along with them. That's what Paul's saying. Then there's the word kindness. Well, we understand that. that's often translated for goodness. Then humbleness of mind. That speaks of lowliness. That speaks of humility. It carried the idea of being willing to give up someone's rights, your own rights or privileges, in order to help somebody else. Then there's the word meekness. That word meekness in Paul's day, that we used to, to speak of the breaking of an animal, taming an animal. Uh, many times the, the illustration is given of a wild stallion. When that wild horse was broken, that stallion was broken, you know what they said of it? It had been meat. And what that means is power under control. It means that uh, uh, not only is power under control or strength under control, but it means that its power was harnessed and dedicated to a proper task. That's what Paul means by the word meekness. Finally, he says long-suffering. That's more commonly known, of course, as patience. And let me tell you what this speaks of. It speaks of patience with difficult people. Okay, now you probably don't want to hear that. There's times I don't like hearing that either. But it's patience with difficult people. These are the virtues, Christian, that are to be experienced in our life when we are dressed for success in the Christian life. We're to be experiencing these things. Now I want you to look at uh, verse 13. Paul speaks about a virtue that's to be expressed. He says, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have quarrel against any. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I believe these are two lost virtues in the lives of many Christians. Forbearance and forgiveness. That word forbearing, it basically meant to put up with someone or be willing to endure them. And it often carried the idea of toleration. Tolerating somebody else. Now, I'm not saying uh, tolerating sin. I'm not saying things. I'm saying tolerating others. And give the idea of maybe uh, uh, somebody who's not as mature as you in their Christian faith. You know, enduring that person. 
You get the idea of somebody who uh, maybe they don't have the... Maybe they don't believe just identically to the way you believe. Now, I'm not saying compromise on essentials. We cannot do that. But on non-essential things. It says we're to tolerate people. <coughs> Forbearing people. Now I want you to look at the next word, forgiveness. That word forgiveness does not mean act like nothing's happened, okay? Rather, it means restore and redeem a relationship in light of what has happened. Make effort, make stress to to restore that relationship. Now, these two virtues, they're closely linked together in the Christian's new wardrobe. Because, listen, in forbearing, we hold everything back. While forgiving, we hold nothing against. That makes sense to you? Let me, let me quick say this. In order for one to be forbearing, it requires that one be forgiving. Can't have one without the other. In order for one to be able to hold nothing against a person, they must be willing to be able to hold everything back. Now I'll put it this way, you have to be willing to overlook so that you can look over certain matters in others' lives. And I will say this, if we're honest, we would have to admit that's probably one of the hardest tasks in a Christian's life. And not only in a Christian's life, but in life in general, folks, to overlook when somebody wrongs us, to let it go, to forbear and forgive. You say, how do you do that, preacher? How is that possible? Well, thank God we're given a model. We're given an example to follow. We're able to forbear and forgive because look at the last line of verse 13. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. The model for Christian forbearance and forgiveness is the way in which Christ has dealt with us. Amen? Folks, listen, when Jesus looks at us, He holds everything back, all the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. He holds everything back, but He holds nothing against. He overlooks it all, and He looks over it all in dealing with you and I. You know, I, I, I'm going to start wrapping up right here. I think about a story I heard of, a, of an employee who was called into the president's office of the company he worked for. Well, this guy knew he was in trouble. He was caught red-handed embezzling money, and he had been embezzling money for several years. But this guy had regret and remorse for it. He sat down in the president's office and the president came in and sat down across the desk from him and he said, I need to ask you, are you guilty? The man, making no excuses, he said, yes, sir, I am. I am guilty of it and I am ashamed of it. And I deserve whatever's coming to me. The man thought for sure, I'm going to lose my job and I'm probably going to spend time in prison. Well, the president of the company looked at him and the president thought, this man's sincere. I see repentance. In his, in his heart, I, I hear it in his voice. I hear remorse. He says, I'll tell you what. He said, I, I promise you, I'm not going to press charges against you. Uh, I, I'm not even going to pursue any punishment whatsoever. Needless to say, the employee was shocked. He couldn't believe what, what was just told to him. Well, the president said, let me ask you one more thing. He said, if I reinstate you and take you back, can I trust you? And the man promised him, he said, yes, yes sir. You'll be able to count on me. I promise you that. Now through it all, this man could not understand the leniency of his boss. I mean, just the generosity, it just blew him away. Because he knew he deserved a harsh punishment. He knew he deserved to go to prison for what he did. Then the president leaned across the desk and got close to the man and looked him right in the face. And he said, I need to tell you something. He said, you're the second man who fell and was pardoned in this room today. He said, I was the first man. And he said, I want you to know the mercy that you have just received, I one day received. 
I forgive you because I too was once forgiven. And then he said, may God have mercy on both of us. Folks, personally, I believe one of the saddest ways to go through life is to hold and harbor resentment in one's heart towards somebody else. I honestly believe that. And I'm going to tell you from experience from years ago, it is not worth it. It's not worth it. And it definitely does not bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you in the ministry, you've got a lot of opportunities to hold bitterness and resentment toward people. There are a lot of things that get said about you, a lot of things that take place that, that they're not true. You know, now some things may be true, I don't know, but uh, a, a lot of things that are said, they're not true. Satan has fired people up for a purpose. Okay? And I know from experience, the best thing you can do is to be forbearing and forgiving. Let it go. I mean, I learned this, folks, and I take it to heart. After everything that God through Christ has forgiven me, I ought to be eager to share that forgiveness and that forbearance with somebody else. This, and I'm going to close on this one because forbearance and forgiveness, that's an integral part of a believer's new wardrobe. You need to have that. You say, I have trouble with that. Well, then you need to let Jesus take care of that for you because you need to follow His example. And I want you to listen to me, and I'm done right here. When we put off the corruption of the sinful man, we put on the character of a born-again man, then and only then are we dressed for true success in the Christian life. Not until. You bow your heads, please. Father, I pray that each one of us would take the heart your word this evening. We would understand that if we are your child, there's a certain way we're to live. There's a certain way we're to behave, we're to act, we're to walk, and we're to talk. And it's a way that brings glory and honor to you. There's a way we're to relate with one another. We're to be forbearing and forgiving with one another. Father, I pray that each of us who claim the name Christ claim to be your child, that we would put off that old sinful nature. We would give ourselves a funeral and realize that we are dead to sin, but we are alive to Christ. We would put off that old nature, we would put on the new nature. And we would begin to live in a way that would bring honor to Christ and in a way that each and every day that passed would begin to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for Your patience with us, for Your forbearance and long-suffering with us. In Christ's name, Amen. Would you stand, please? I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. I can
a garden. I'll go with him through the garden. I'll go with him, with him all the way. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him all 